Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Frank Clemente, Executive Director of Americans for Tax Fairness, who discusses a proposed billionaire's tax and other measures to fund President Biden's Build Back Better human infrastructure plan. John Noel, senior climate campaigner with Greenpeace USA, who talks about the role West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin has played in derailing President Biden's policy proposals to address the global climate crisis. And Shelley Altman of the group Jewish Voice for Peace, who maintains that Israel's designation of six Palestinian human rights groups as terrorists is but another chapter in Israel's ongoing oppression of the Palestinian people. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. In Western Europe, social democratic parties are in decline and losing popularity. As the American Prospect observes, as recently as the late 1990s, center-left parties dominated governments across the European Union. But after British Prime Minister Tony Blair and German leader Gerhard Schroeder outdid conservatives in embracing neoliberal austerity policies, their popularity began to erode. Today, with the EU expanding into Eastern Europe, only six of the 27 governments are center-left, while far-right populists are on the rise. The French Socialist Party is near collapse, and the British Labour Party is in disarray. And although the German Social Democratic Party won a narrow victory in the September 26th federal election, beating their conservative rivals by only 1.6 points, the SPD will need to enlist two other parties to form a governing coalition. Only in Portugal is there a solid and popular left-wing coalition running the government. The 2008 financial crisis, produced by extreme deregulation, promoted by both conservatives and liberals, became a defining moment for European center-left parties. Later, the flood of refugees from war-ravaged Syria, Somalia, and other nations in crisis created another backlash, when many of the Social Democrats' traditional working-class base voted for right-wing nationalist and anti-immigrant parties. After decades of smugglers bringing Mexican marijuana into the United States, the tables have turned. Cannabis legally grown in the U.S. is now being smuggled over the southern border and sold in Mexico's lucrative black market. The Washington Post reports that pot imported from California into Mexico is viewed by many customers as the best quality and is sold for up to three times the U.S. legal retail price. A growing number of Southern California traffickers are filling suitcases with legal high-quality weed and traveling to Mexico. A recent police stop in Tijuana confiscated more than 5,000 gummies infused with THC, the active ingredient in marijuana. Authorities estimate that 60% of marijuana sold by top Mexican city dealers now comes from California. The boom of U.S. marijuana smuggled into Mexico may have very real negative economic consequences for workers who cultivate weed in places like Sinaloa State. Mexico's president, 
Andres Manuel López Obrador recently visited the region to express his concern over the loss of jobs. Mexico is considering legalizing the possession of small amounts of pot, but the cannabis industry in Mexico remains illegal. In April 2020, the Republican-run Wisconsin state legislature rejected a constitutional amendment that would have created a nonpartisan commission to redraw electoral district maps, a reform embraced by states across the U.S. A decade earlier, the Wisconsin GOP had manipulated district lines that cemented the Republican majority in the state. Although the GOP received less than half of the total votes statewide, the party won around two-thirds of the districts thanks to the maps they drew after the last census. An analysis by the University of Southern California found that Wisconsin is the second most gerrymandered state in the nation after Virginia, which recently passed redistricting reform legislation. For months, activists in Wisconsin under the Fair Maps Coalition have waged a grassroots campaign to establish a nonpartisan redistricting commission. Wisconsin's Democratic governor, Tony Evers, said he is determined to prevent a repeat of the Republican gerrymandering of new district maps when they're drawn for the 2022 elections and beyond. He has pledged to veto any gerrymandered maps approved by the Republican legislature, and both sides are preparing for the issue to be sent to the courts. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. As congressional negotiations over President Biden's Build Back Better Reconciliation bill reached a critical stage, it's clear that the original $3.5 trillion domestic spending agenda over 10 years will be greatly reduced to between $1.5 and $2 trillion. The initial proposal sought to fund a long list of social policy objectives, including universal preschool, paid family leave, expanded Medicare services, making increased child tax credits permanent, and new policies to address climate change. But opposition by a few corporate Democrats has succeeded in scaling back the plan. Proposed programs that have been withdrawn include providing two years of free community college and instituting a clean electricity program to rein in carbon emissions. One major element of the original bill was to pay for the new programs by raising taxes on the wealthiest Americans and profitable corporations. But when Arizona Democratic Senator Kristen Sinema opposed reversing the 2017 Trump tax cuts, alternative methods of raising funds needed to be found. Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, chair of the Senate Finance Committee, is now proposing a billionaire's tax that would affect fewer than a 1,000 people. The tax would require those with assets of more than $1 billion or income of $100 million for three consecutive years to pay taxes on gains on stocks and other tradable assets rather than waiting until holdings are sold. Your reporter spoke with Frank Clemente, Executive Director of Americans for Tax Fairness, who discusses the proposed billionaire's tax and other measures to fund the Build Back Better Human Infrastructure Plan 
and ensure that the wealthiest Americans pay their fair share in taxes. It's called the Billionaire's Income Tax, being proposed by Senator Wyden, who's the chairman of the Finance Committee. That's the tax writing committee. So that's a big help to have the guy who's in charge of shepherding the tax bill through. His idea here is a, it's a form of a wealth tax, but it's uh, not called a wealth tax because it's really a tax on income. The way to think about it, it, it's in two parts. One is, think of Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos is worth close to $200 billion, I think $190 billion at our last estimate. He started out under a billion dollars when he first got his Amazon stock, and his Amazon stock has grown in value, and he's accumulated more Amazon stock, whatever. Virtually all of his wealth, though, is, is from uh, stock, his stock. And he has had reports from his uh, financial institutions that say what it was worth when he first bought it and how much it gained and what it's worth today. Wyden's tax would say, okay, we're going to tax those uh, gains in income, capital gains income, on your stock, which is the increased value of your stock. We're going to tax it as if you sold it. You don't have to sell it, but as if you sold it, we're going to tax it as if it's income, as if it's income just like uh, the rest of us you know, get a salary every year. You're getting a big wealth gain every year. Uh, you're not selling it. You don't have to sell it. One, because you don't need to sell it. You don't need that much money to, <laughs> to live, even though he's, he's just bought a $500 million yacht that's about to start floating. But we're going to treat it like income. And so Wyden's bill would, would tax that, those gains, uh, at the capital gains tax rate, so the 20% rate, not the income tax rate, not much higher rate, 37%, but at, at least at that capital gains tax rate. And uh, it would tax it not just this year, but over the entire course of the life of those assets, you're gonna have to, he's going to have to pay taxes on it. Now, he doesn't have to pay it all in one year. He's gonna, there's going to be a five, six, seven, ten-year period during which he can pay it out. So that's how it would work. For non-tradable assets, if you're a David Koch and you own Koch Industries and most of your wealth is tied up in your business, you're not going to have to pay taxes on it until you sell your business. Then the capital gains tax will be due, which it is already due when, you sell your, when he sells his business. But there's going to be an interest charge for every year you didn't pay taxes on it. We're going to assess you an interest charge. Uh, and so you'll have to pay more than just what the capital gains tax is. So that's how it works. It gets at this wealth in a very substantial way. And we think it's probably more defensible from a Supreme Court point of view as well. So anyway, that's totally in play. We could raise about $250 billion of the $800 billion we're going to lose from cinema saying, I don't want this, this, and this tax. It's going to drop the amount that is coming in by about seven, $800 billion. So we'll get about a third of that back with this billionaire's income tax. If Senator Wyden's proposal here goes through the wealth tax, what is the deficit that remains that has to be made up in a shrunken down Biden build back better package of about $2 trillion? Is there a lot uh, that has I, to be made up or is it uh, pretty close? Well, I'm not sure because I don't know what the spending amount is. And uh, it, it really has a lot to do with that. But there's a few other places. So Senator Wyden is proposing that uh, stock buybacks be taxed. Most people probably don't know what stock buybacks are, but after Trump's tax cuts passed, remember everybody was promised a big raise by their employer and uh, they're going to take their tax cut and dole it out to everybody. Well, what most corporations did was they bought back their own stock. They had a lot of cash and they bought back their own stock and by buying back their own stock, it increases the price of their stock. 
which inflates the value of it, which makes people who are holding that stock wealthier. 90% of the stock is owned by the 10% of the richest people. Half of it's owned by the top 1%. So inflating that value by buying, doing stock buybacks was uh, benefiting the rich. If corporations are going to do stock buybacks, they want to discourage it or they want to tax it as a way to discourage it. And that raises a chunk of change. There's also the corporate minimum tax. That was not in the House bill. 55 major national corporations didn't pay a dime in taxes last year, federal income taxes. Putting in place a corporate minimum tax would ensure that those that a lot of these corporations can't get away with paying nothing, and it would try and establish a 15% minimum tax so that they pay 15% of the profits uh, get paid in taxes. So that could raise a couple hundred billion dollars. And then there's a whole bunch of changes that would fund the IRS better so that the IRS could go after tax cheats focused on uh, uh, wealthy tax cheats and, and the corporate tax cheats. Uh, that could bring in two, anywhere from 200 to 400 billion dollars. Uh, so there's some there's some real good ways to pick up some additional revenue, uh, and it, it really just depends on what they set the uh, investment spending level at. That was Frank Clemente, executive director of Americans for Tax Fairness. Learn more about the proposed billionaires tax and other measures to reform the U.S. tax system by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. West Virginia's Democratic Senator Joe Manchin has played a pivotal role in shaping President Biden's proposed Build Back Better human infrastructure bill. Objecting to both the $3.5 trillion price tag of the spending package and some of the programs it funded. Because the reconciliation bill that bypasses a Republican filibuster requires all 50 Democratic votes to pass, Manchin and every other Democratic senator's votes are critical. As congressional negotiators neared a final deal, Senator Manchin publicly stated he would vote against any package that included the Clean Energy Performance Program, or CEPP, the flagship climate policy of Biden's Build Back Better Act that would require electric utility companies to rapidly replace fossil fuels with renewables such as solar and wind. Manchin's opposition derails Biden's goal to reduce U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by at least 50 percent below 2005 levels by the year 2030. Congressional Democrats and environmental groups are now searching for alternative ways to reduce carbon emissions before Biden travels to the U.N. Climate Change Summit in Glasgow, Scotland, that begins on October 31st. Your reporter spoke with John Noel, senior climate campaigner at Greenpeace USA, who assesses the significance of the loss of the Clean Energy Performance Program and how U.S. climate policy may impact decisions made by other nations at the U.N. Climate Summit in Scotland. Well, we know that Joe Manchin makes, him and his wife, make millions of dollars a year off of two coal companies that they own. Um, They both receive dividends from a coal company that they put in a blind trust that their son now operates. Right? And he still takes over $500,000 a year in dividends. We also know that Joe Manchin in this recent quarter took the most oil and gas money from oil and gas corporations um, in this campaign cycle in the, in the quarter that was just reported. So he is beholden not to the constituents of West Virginia, but to the polluting companies um, that dominate. And his positions on the climate provisions are are reflected in that little um, power analysis. So he is against the clean energy 
performance plan. This is a set of incentives to help utilities rapidly transition from coal and natural gas over to solar and wind. Right? This is a necessary component of the rapid transformation that will benefit all Americans. Um, he's against that because that will reduce the amount of coal and gas burned in this country. He is against eliminating fossil fuel subsidies, right? And this is a core Greenpeace campaign right now. We're trying to rewrite the tax codes so oil and gas companies pay their fair share, and we're able to raise money from them, close these loopholes to pay for the rest of the bill and other human infrastructure provisions. So he, he's largely against some of the very major key components that would usher in the transformation that the world scientists say is necessary. There's a global consensus. It's happening in other developed nations. Literally everybody is on board um, except for oil and gas executives and, and their senator in West Virginia. If Senator Joe Manchin succeeds in blocking the key provisions we've been talking about, the uh, clean electricity program as well as the, the cutoff of fossil fuel subsidies, what alternatives are possible to address climate change and reduce carbon and greenhouse gas emissions that cause global warming? There's been a few analysis that have come out recently, very recently, that say, okay, without this clean energy performance plan, which would make up the bulk of the emissions reductions of, of the Biden administration out to 2030, it is still technically possible right, to, to meet our global commitments and to mount a significant response to the climate crisis, but it will be more difficult, potentially more um, expensive. And one of the main ways is clean energy tax credits, right? So handing out tax credits to companies to produce renewable energies, batteries, electric vehicles, et cetera. There's a whole host of, of technologies um, and strategies to reduce emissions in each sector of the economy. But I got to tell you, it's everyone is scrambling because everyone was banking on this clean energy performance plan, and now it's been taken, pretty much taken out of the bill. It just shows how chaotic, unfortunate, and how the U.S., with our almost schizophrenic politics, is, is a global outlier when it comes to addressing the climate crisis. How important is the outcome of these congressional negotiations over Biden's Build Back Better plan when it comes to uh, measures to address climate change, given that countries around the world are watching U.S. policy on climate very closely in advance of the United Nations Climate Change Summit in Glasgow, Scotland, which begins October 31st and winds up on November 12th. It's incredibly important. I mean, this is it. Ideally, they wanted this whole bill dialed, voted on, and passed, and so he could walk into the Glasgow U.N., negotiations and say that America is back. We're ready to show global leadership. But what's really going to happen at best is that they will have a framework agreed upon by Manchin, right, that will not have these necessary climate provisions and will still subsidize domestic oil and gas production. People will know that Biden is not walking in there with an ironclad deal that dismantles the oil and gas industry power structure and instead just relies on tax credits. So reality and the politics in this country and fossil fuel industry control is now catching up, and we're seeing it unfold this week. So he's going to have to be real with that. 
And I, I think the Germans, the Japanese, the other European countries may have to step up or at least challenge Joe Biden on this so maybe he can be inspired to go harder back home, be inspired to take executive action, use more carrots on Joe Manchin and really lead us into this next couple of years for climate policy, because right now we're not seeing it. That was John Noel, senior climate campaigner at Greenpeace USA. Learn more about the work of Greenpeace and other climate activist groups by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Israel's Minister of Defense, Benny Gantz, declared on October 22nd that six West Bank-based Palestinian civil society human rights groups are terrorist organizations, accusing them of funneling money to expanding the terror infrastructure and recruiting potential terrorists. Specifically, Israel claims these groups are part of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, a small secular far-left group designated by Israel, the U.S., and the European Union as a terrorist organization. While Israel says the charges against these groups are based on irrefutable evidence from Shin Bet, the Israeli security agency similar to the U.S. CIA, the Palestinian organizations accused deny their designation as terrorists and claim that they're being targeted as part of an ongoing and expanding campaign of political persecution. These charges authorizes Israel to raid the group's offices, seize assets, arrest employees, and criminalize funding and expressions of support. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Shelley Altman, chairperson of the New Haven chapter of the group Jewish Voice for Peace. Here he describes the groups that have been accused and places this development in the context of Israel's ongoing oppression of the Palestinian people. First, let me just... uh mention what the organizations are, the Defense for Children International Palestine, Al-Haq, uh, which is a leading human rights uh, organization in West Bank, Adamir, which is a prisoner support and human rights association, the Union of Agricultural Work Committees supports farmers resisting land theft, the Bissan Center for Research and Development advocates for civil rights and human rights and socioeconomic rights, and Finally, the Union of Palestinian Women, which advocates for women's rights in in, uh, the occupied territories. Uh, In terms of the reaction, several reactions. One is, did the United States even know this was happening? The State Department claims it had no idea that it was happening, but Israel claims that it cleared this with the United States before they announced the designation. So I I don't know. It's just ridiculous that these two allies are both saying, talking out of both sides of their mouth. In terms of the reactions from the organizations, the Defense for Children International Palestine said, we reject this designation as just another unjust action by Israeli authorities to criminalize and eliminate our lawful human rights and child protection work. And I have to say that I have worked closely with Defense for Children International Palestine. I know the people who are involved in that. And it's really, they are such a good organization. And to call them terrorists is an abomination. Another reaction to this is from U.S. Representative Betty McCollum from Minnesota, who has uh, sponsored the Palestinian Family and uh, Children and Families Act, H.R. 2590, which has been 
co-sponsored by some 30 US representatives. And Betty McCollum said, this is nothing more than an attempt to silence supporters of Palestinian rights. I trust and value Defense for Children International and Palestine's work advancing human rights. I stand with Amnesty International in, in challenging this decision. Shelley Altman, what impact is this having on the ground? Is Israel circumscribing the activities of these groups or preventing them from accessing their funding or declaring them outright illegal and they have to stop operating or go underground? You know, at the very, at the very highest level, it's a textbook case of repression. And it's a transparent effort to silence criticism of Israeli apartheid, which has been documented by another human, two other human rights groups, uh, Human Rights Watch and the Israeli human rights organization B'Tselem. Um, and so it's really a transparent effort to silence criticism of, of Israel. This could lead to mass arrests of human rights advocates under false pretenses. These organizations work with people around the world, and uh, I mean, particularly here in the United States, Defense for Children International, AHAC, Adamir, have very close connections with folks working for human rights in the United States. And so it's effectively criminalizing the entire human rights movement, really, I would say. So the Israeli action uh, is not just happening in Palestine, but Israel also openly brags about its involvement in legislative efforts to undermine the First Amendment of the US Constitution here in the US. Some 30 odd states have passed legislation that says that organizations in the United States, businesses, individuals who support the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, also called BDS, that those organizations, the states can, can refuse to do business with them, they can withdraw scholarships and that sort of thing. And the BDS movement is a movement that started about 12, 13 years ago. It comes from over 200 civil organizations in Palestine, and it really has three very simple, simple parts to it. The first one is to end the occupation of the West Bank and of Gaza. Gaza is under siege, and effectively it's an occupation. The second is to have equal rights for Palestinian citizens of the state of Israel. And the third is to implement UN resolutions that allow for right of return of Palestinians who were displaced from their homes and their land in 1948. I think the refusal of the international community to impose serious consequences for Israel's crimes for decades, including land theft, ethnic cleansing, the bombing of civilian areas, the abuse of children in military detention, I think all of that acceptance of Israeli impunity has emboldened Israel to take yet another outrageous step against Palestinian human rights. And so I think it's time to stop pretending that Israel is some flourishing democracy. It's time to deal with the reality that Israel is an apartheid state, as documented by B'Tselem and by Human Rights Watch, that it's imposing an illegal occupation on another people, and it's depriving people of their most basic rights. And so that's what needs to be done. Israel needs to be called to account for its behavior. That was Shelley Altman, chair of the New Haven chapter of the group Jewish Voice for Peace. Find more analysis and commentary on Israel's designation of Palestinian human rights groups as terrorists by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues 
affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WPKN in Bridgeport, Connecticut, WOZW in Knoxville, Tennessee, KXDR in New Orleans, Louisiana, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. <laughs>